We've built two very large greenhouses in East Anglia, one on the outskirts of Norwich, one near Bury St Edmunds, and they're a world first in terms of capturing waste heat from sewage works. The two greenhouses we've built will produce circa 10% of the UK's tomatoes. So we're capturing large amounts of heat, uh, which was transferring into the greenhouse via the heat pumps, which are of course electrically driven. And in doing so, we're providing 90 odd percent of the heat that the greenhouse requires solely from the waste heat from the sewage work. So it's very sustainable. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. And in this episode, we've partnered with Mott McDonald to talk about how the UK water industry is leading the world in reducing its operational carbon emissions to net zero by 2030. But first, we are going to find out about another world-leading project. Enormous greenhouses that are capturing the heat generated from wastewater treatment to provide the warm environment needed to grow tomatoes. A lot of tomatoes. Somewhere between 9,000 and 16,000 tonnes a year which is actually more than 10% of the amount we grow in the UK. We grow about 65,000 tonnes per year. This use of waste heat is an example of how water companies can benefit other industries in their quest towards net zero by 2030. A quest that is two decades ahead of the UK's national target, which was set in June 2019, when it was written into law that UK greenhouse gas emissions would be net zero by 2050 meaning we must find the right balance between emissions we produce and the amount that we remove. In that same year, 2019, we emitted 435 million tonnes of greenhouse gases. And it's exactly why initiatives like the water industry's Net Zero 2030 route map are important. But before we learn about that, we're going back to East Anglia and these super sustainable greenhouses. Last week we began planting 300,000 baby tomato plants across the two greenhouses. This is Andy Allen. Uh, my name's Andy Allen. I'm a director and co-founder of Oast House Ventures. We're a development business and we also provide um, funds for businesses which are in our industry mainly, which is renewable energy in particular. When it came to developing these greenhouses, location was everything. Andy and his team examined every major sewage treatment works in the UK, looking for facilities with large enough flow rates to generate the heat required, and at the same time having plenty of space nearby for developing these massive glass structures. The temperature of the wastewater leaving this uh, sewage works is about between 5 and 15 degrees, and what we do is we capture only a few degrees of that water but at very large volumes of flow. So we're capturing large amounts of heat, uh, which was transferring into the greenhouse via the heat pumps, which are of course electrically driven. And in doing so, we're providing 90 odd percent of the heat that the greenhouse requires solely from the waste heat from the sewage work. So it's very sustainable. In addition to the heat pumps, uh, we also have some combined heat and power engines, and they provide 
the carbon dioxide and electricity for the greenhouse as well. So as well as high temperature heat in case on certain mornings and cold spurts in the, in the year that we need higher temperature water. Just to be clear, the wastewater itself is not going to be used in the growing process. Its role is purely as a heat source for the greenhouse 2.5 kilometers away. Wastewater is taken right at the end of the treatment process when it is cleaned, but still warm. At that point, we are taking that heat from that water uh, via heat exchangers and on a hydraulically separated unit, we are pumping that heat in a heat transfer fluid two and a half kilometers in a 450 mil pipe to our energy center at our greenhouse where that heat is put through our heat pumps and the, the heat transfer fluid flows back to the sewage works to pick up more heat and comes back. So it just is constantly going around in a loop. Even better, Andy says that the experience on this project could act as a template for the use of heat pumps at residential and industrial scale. And these have much lower carbon emissions than gas boilers. I think the largest heat pumps used in the UK to date are, are roughly around the sort of six megawatt mark. And we've done a step change in terms of scale. Our heat pumps are in the mid 30s for mega megawatt hours in terms of capacity of heating. So a real st standalone flagship project showing what can be done with heat pumps and electric heating as a whole. This is a great example of how heat pumps can be deployed at scale. And think of the potential impact on a society where the majority of people use gas boilers in their houses. Andy argues that a transition to heat pumps is needed. But of course, none of this could have happened without collaboration with the owner of the wastewater treatment works that supply Andy's greenhouses with the waste heat. Hats off to Anglian Water, who we work in collaboration with. And um, obviously, it was a sensitive discussion point because we're putting pieces of equipment on their site, essentially. And what happens if our equipment breaks? What happens if we affect their, you know, they're a regulated utility? What happens if we affect them? So there was lots of discussion points around that and lots of protections built in. But um, no, I, I can see that other water companies are looking to do similar things. The greenhouse thing is wonderful because it means that the greenhouses are emitting far less CO2 in doing what they need to do to supply food. This is Richard Buckingham, Climate Change and Carbon Manager for Anglian Water. We're benefiting because our uh, previously warm effluent that will be discharged when it comes back from the greenhouses has been cooled. So it's discharged cooler, so the environment you know, benefits from that. In terms of a carbon benefit, uh, there's no real carbon benefit to us. We're not, we're not saving any uh, any carbon really. But of course, the greenhouses really are. They're saving a great deal of carbon. But we but it's a nice synergy really because they're using they're using something which before the greenhouses was waste, um, and now uh, is a valuable resource. And that kind of circular economy thinking, I think, is is quite key. So although Anglian Water isn't getting a direct carbon saving from this project. This is a collaboration that is helping farming and agriculture to lower their carbon footprint. And Richard echoes Andy's thoughts on potential for expansion beyond agriculture. Now this, this particular one is greenhouses, but there's no reason why this, what we currently term waste heat, couldn't become a valuable resource to another user. Now in this case it's greenhouses, but there's no reason why it couldn't be in, in buildings. 
for Anglian Water, helping other entities lower their carbon footprint through projects like reuse of waste heat is an extension of the work they're doing to lower their own. I'm also responsible for the net zero carbon route map. Remember that one? The plan for all water companies to have net zero operational emissions by 2030. We've linked to it in our show notes. The roadmap to net zero is essentially a sector level plan showing different pathways of how the water sector in the UK could reach net zero by 2030 by summarizing different decarbonization options of how to get there. This is Maria Manadaki, technical lead for net zero from Mott McDonald. The consultant worked with Ricardo to create this route map for the whole industry at the request of Water Industry Trade Association, Water UK. Now, when we're talking about net zero, we're talking about that we need to be following a decarbonization hierarchy in any of the pathways we're looking at, where we have to really, really reduce our emissions first, avoid basically those emissions, yeah. Then you're talking about um, displacing those emissions by using renewable energy or other things to replace uh, the fossil fuel electricity. And after you've done all these things, then you can consider uh, removing those emissions by natural sequestration or other means. So the removals bit is the net in the net zero equation. The pathways don't just depend on the efforts of the water companies. For example, the greatest source of emissions today is electricity purchased from the grid. So the rate at which the UK continues to decarbonise its energy sector directly affects the rate at which water companies can reduce emissions. This different pace would also incentivise companies to procure and or generate their own renewable electricity. So a really ambitious pathway could see the water sector cut emissions by 10 million tonnes over the next decade. And two other scenarios show a lower rate of reduction. Maria also points out that water companies have already lowered the carbon footprint by 45 to 50% over the past decade. And this has largely been driven by the gradual decarbonisation of the UK electricity mix. They have really, really invested a lot on efficiency, energy efficiency, and they have started accelerating in the last uh, three, four years the deployment of renewables uh, from biogas, from the sludge. We'll talk about those in more detail or solar wind. But the message here is that... um, Even if we continue to do all these great things the companies have been doing in the future, it will not take us to net zero. We will be about, you know, 50% out of that. Although the net zero route map is written for the industry as a whole, the challenge facing water companies varies across the country. Here is Richard from Anglian Water again. Each water company will be producing their own net zero route map by July this year. And I suppose from Anglian Water's perspective, the key themes for us will be around energy efficiency and reducing consumption and around renewable generation. Not only will they be seeking efficiencies, they'll be generating their own cleaner power sources. Our target is to generate 44% of our electricity requirement using renewables by 2025. And those renewables are mainly PV and CHP stroke biogas. That means developing well over 100 solar energy projects. Last year, for example, the company switched on its biggest array to date, 11.65 megawatts of solar panels at the Grafham Water Treatment Works in Cambridgeshire. This alone will save 3,500 tonnes of carbon per annum. 
but it's not always as easy as simply placing solar cells alongside sources of energy demand. There are areas of the network where demand is higher than others, but part of it revolves around where you can actually put solar installations. So how much land do you have around particular facilities? So um, certain points of reservoirs, for example, we have large areas of land and we can put big solar arrays in. Uh, we have some covered reservoirs, which are already kind of flat, hard standing. And again, we can put lots of solar in. So it isn't necessarily the case that the highest energy consuming plant will be supplied by renewables that are on that site because it depends upon the context. I mean, in an ideal world, that'd be exactly what you would do if you're planning from you know the very beginning, but we're not in that position. This is an important point because all water companies are working with massive existing networks, some of which are over 100 years old, and they were set up to be efficient as possible at the time. But times change. So over time, our industry and many other industries has kind of evolved that we will use electricity at night. Now, if you're using PV generation, um, that makes no sense because the PV isn't generating the energy at night time. So it's about trying to switch some of your consumption that into the day when you're generating your own energy. But then you're also in a situation where there are certain times where you are generating more energy than you're consuming. Now, if you export that to the grid, it's not necessarily as valuable to you as it is if you use it yourself. So if you can store that excess electricity and then use it when you need it, it's valuable. But you're right in the sense that there's, we're still trialing in many ways the efficiency of using battery storage. But of course, you know, battery technology is, is evolving extremely quickly. United Utilities has already installed a 2 megawatt battery to store energy from solar panels at its Clifton Marsh treatment works in Lancashire. And in Scotland, vanadium flow batteries are being connected to 2,520 solar panels at the Perth Wastewater Treatment Works. Moving away from grid electricity and developing their own renewable resources is an important step in decarbonising the water industry. But there's another emissions challenge that's going to be a lot more difficult to tackle. It is an area where emissions are a lot harder to pinpoint. This is Pete Stevens, Manager of Carbon Neutrality at Yorkshire Water. So our process emissions, you know, how do we capture those? How do we record it? And what kind of projects we do to, to kind of resolve those and turn, you know, the nitrogen dioxide and methane, how do we capture those, those gases? Process emissions are the second biggest source of greenhouse gas emission for water companies. And as Pete says, it's not just about carbon. Nitrogen dioxide and methane are emitted from wastewater treatment and subsequent sludge treatment. But until now, this hasn't really been analysed or accounted for. Priyesh Dapala, a senior investment advisor for low carbon infrastructure at Mott MacDonald, says that our understanding of the scale of those emissions from different types of aeration processes and different setups is relatively limited. So the two main processes that we use in treating wastewater in the UK are aerated processes. If largely all of them are aerated and that's activated sludge processes, which are in the presence of oxygen and air. And then the other ones are a kind of less um, intensive process, which is trickling filters. So we rely on ambient air to kind of grow on physical media. These forms of aerobic biological treatment all rely on specific forms of bacteria, which in the presence of oxygen can digest organic matter in the wastewater. And as they do this, they begin to stick together and can easily be removed through simple settlement forming a sludge. Then there is the less common 
anaerobic wastewater treatment process, which uses a different type of bacteria to clean up the wastewater, something that could play a more important role in future. So you have covered tanks in the absence of oxygen, where it's a different type of process where you rely on membranes and um, you don't get this released atmosphere of these process machines and you get full conversion through the process rather than having kind of a biological process that relies on the transfer of oxygen to complete that process. So probably a bit more efficient when you're having a anaerobic process, but again, the infrastructure requirements, the temperature requirements and the complexity of the process still, still issues to deal with. And it's not something that we've historically used in the UK. Most of our legacy wastewater treatment involves the first kind of wastewater treatment, huge open aerated systems. And capturing the emissions may cost more and may not be the most efficient way to move forward. So you kind of either have to look at advanced thermal treatments and or you have to look at, you know, this kind of the idea of you're going to encapsulate all your processes and somehow clean the air before it goes to atmosphere. Nothing's going to be cheap. There's a need for innovation. And I don't think anyone's got a clear picture of how we're going to deal with process emissions. And that's probably quite a big risk to becoming net zero. Innovation's already found its way into the sludge treatment side of the water sector, where the biogas is emitted as the solids are broken down, are captured to generate energy, and then the solid waste itself is used in agriculture. So all our sewage sludge goes into digesters to produce biomethane. The biomethane is then put into a combined heat and power plant to create renewable energy and heat, and they are both used on site. Then the spent digestate is used as a a fertiliser, so it's a really good example of the circular economy. In fact, Yorkshire Water has been collaborating with a range of businesses to see how this biogas might be a low-carbon fuel for other industries. In 2019, it used this gas to supply electricity to a pop-up pub in Leeds city centre. Much of its biogas came from a new £72 million anaerobic digestion plant, which can treat 131 tonnes of sludge per day, almost all of the sludge produced by the city of Leeds. The biogas that it produces is enough to run 55% of the energy needed to treat the sludge and turn it into fertiliser. New facilities like this demonstrate that we've got a lot better at treating sewage sludge. So we started off with conventional anaerobic digestion, which is kind of at a mesophilic temperature, and then we've gone on to add pretreatments to that, which boost the biogas production by either adding additional enzymes or heat to that. And that's really boosted our um, gas production from those anaerobic digestion processes by over 30% over the last 10, 15 years. And now we're looking at what can we do with that biogas It's this kind of thinking around using our waste as a resource and then collaborating with other industries that's key in tackling the net zero challenge. So, and then going further on that, we've got kind of anaerobic digestion kind of heavily embedded in the sector. But if we look at Thames Water and their pyrolysis plant, they've got a demonstration pyrolysis plant that's going through. Pyrolysis goes further than anaerobic digestion. It heats the sludge up to 800 degrees Celsius in the absence of oxygen. Because no oxygen is present, the sludge does not combust, but the chemical compounds in the sludge thermally decompose into two end products, combustible gases and char. Extracting this gas results in capturing significantly more energy from the sludge. 
it, it can be over 50% more, making the process energetically self-sufficient. The char contains key elements such as nitrogen and phosphorus and even precious metals, resources that could be of value to other industries. So if we look at megawatt hours per tonne dry solid that we can get through anaerobic digestion, a, a well-operated a well pyrolysis plant can really have a step change in the amount of biogas and syngas that produces and can generate a big step change in the amount of power that we could be getting out of each tonne of dry solids that we have. These advanced thermal processes could see more biogas produced than the water companies need for powering their own operations and again lead to more collaboration between water companies and other industries. In the longer term, sewage also contains a wide range of chemicals such as phosphorus and volatile fatty acids that could be extracted and become a resource of the future. Hydrogen too is being considered as an operational fuel of the future. So you see Yorkshire Water trialling on the first hydrogen-powered HGVs. And we, you know, a few years ago, we thought that was a long, long way off. And it's a really big step to say, again, removing the barriers to how could we get a really difficult to decarbonize part of our emissions, really moving forward and accelerating faster. Transport is another area where water companies are seeking to reduce emissions, sitting just behind grid electricity and process emissions in terms of operational carbon. In Yorkshire, a 7.5-tonne clean water tanker was converted to run on hydrogen as a trial, and the hydrogen itself is produced from wind turbines. So far, Pete says that the team has had great results. But there's another area where Yorkshire Water's made major progress that could benefit the whole sector and beyond. Because when Mott McDonald began working on the Water UK net zero route map, they realised that there needs to be a stronger market and guidance for accelerating sequestration from land use change. One of the key challenges that we had at the kind of creating the Water UK route map, kind of apart from natural sequestration perspective, was that we didn't have a baseline. Natural sequestration, the ability of land to remove carbon emissions. Water companies are major landholders, and the way they manage this land can give them an important lever to remove their residual carbon emissions and reduce their reliance in purchasing offsets in a carbon market. So we didn't have all of the UK water company landholdings and understanding what the kind of balance was. Were they emitting carbon across that land? Were they sequestering carbon across that land? Um, and the Yorkshire Water Tour really was kind of focused to address that. So we've created a model that takes all our land use types, its condition, and then we can run various scenarios to show what happens if we plant a million trees, how much carbon will it sequate. Then the following part of that is, yes, it stores X amount of carbon, right? How much of that fits in with the certified schemes where we can account for carbon reduction? And that's, that's, you know, there are multiple challenges in this that lots of different companies are facing. The other thing I'll say about, about some of the work we've done around this is the long-term nature of carbon storage. So you might be doing projects now that are really good at reducing pollutants, increasing flood resilience and storing carbon. But if you don't register them, you kind of lose some of the carbon benefit that you can account for. With tree planting, for example, the carbon sequestration actually happens decades into the future, and it peaks and then declines. So 
it's making sure we've got the right strategy to plant the right trees in the right place, restore the land properly, account for it transparently and openly for our customers' sake, um, and have that very much longer term view, you know, 25, 30, 50 years plus, when we're in a climate emergency now. So there's all those tensions going on. Peatland, for example, has huge carbon storage potential, but we need to better understand the science behind it and the permanency of any changes over time, especially when the effects of climate change will be more visible in the years to come. If you want to register a peatland restoration project to get certified credits, you probably need at least a project that's going to be in the, you know, working, if you like, and operational for 30 years. So if you know that something's going to happen to that land in those 30 years and it's going to change, you can't necessarily register it for those credits. But we shouldn't let that stop us doing the right thing on our land now. And it is that philosophy that has driven Yorkshire Water's creation of a land use model that accounts for all of the various activities and uses of land right now. But what does it show? So our model at the moment is telling us, and there is, there is, you know, there's further development to be done here. Our model at the moment is saying trees are going to give us a long, longer term, bigger storage potential. But what we need to be getting on with now is peatland restoration. This could form a vital component of UK plans to get to net zero by 2050. The Committee on Climate Change has advised government that peatland restoration could save 5 million tonnes of carbon emissions a year by 2050. It is another example of how getting to net zero requires collaboration across a wide range of stakeholders so that the land can be better used, resources can be better captured and shared, and the efforts of the water industry can benefit the rest of the country. In the same way that waste heat is supporting low-carbon agriculture and food security in the greenhouses, or that chemicals could be extracted from sewage and provided to industries that need them. By having the roadmap out there, it has created quite a big focus on carbon management and net zero, and it has driven thinking around looking outside of the water sector boundary and within the wider system in the UK. For example, when you can capture heat, as we mentioned earlier, you can export it, this waste heat, to be beneficial for the greenhouses or a building, then this is although this is not a benefit, direct carbon benefit for the water company, but it's the right thing to do from a systems perspective. And if we apply systems thinking to other areas? The same with um, demand management, when you are reducing uh, your demand by having more educational program with your customers, they are reducing the emissions uh, from heating the water in the home. These are not benefits for the water sector, but it's the right thing to do for the wider net zero, if you like, system economy of the UK. There are many examples like that, and I'm really glad to say that the conversation has really, really uh, raised the ambition when it comes to carbon. And now more and more people, especially in the water sector, have been thinking around this systems view of the world. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, Fellow Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne. 
The co-host and script editor was Alex Conacher. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our executive heat pump is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald, and thanks also to Anglian Water, Yorkshire Water, and Oast House Ventures. Thanks for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. 